If you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, as we will seek to finish this chapter this morning, Lord willing. We come to the story of Jesus, and he is 12 years old. And I had a lot of titles for this sermon. I mean, it was, they were legion, you know, the lost boy. Uh, I called it Home Alone. should be with a question mark. Uh, Honey, I Lost the Messiah, Boy Wonder, Famous First Words, Growing Pains, Left Behind, uh, Child Prodigy, Lost and Found, you know, just just a lot of them, you know. So I wanted to give a number of those to you so that I get credit. Uh, But I decided to go with Home Alone. should have a question mark I forgot to put in there. Uh, You'll see, I think, in a a few moments why. Uh, Let's read the text, Luke chapter 2. Well, Pick it up in verse 39 to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. It was October 15th, 2009, when a homemade helium-filled gas balloon shaped to resemble a silver flying saucer was released into the atmosphere above Fort Collins, Colorado, from the home of Richard and uh, Mayumi Hen, or Heen. Uh, it was believed at the time that their six-year-old son was somehow trapped in the balloon and had flown into the air. And so uh, their son Falcon, um, w- they thought, had, had gone away into this balloon. Uh, the balloon was in the air for a, a total of around 90 minutes and uh, led to the temporary shutdown of the Denver airport. No doubt the parents uh, would have been frantic trying to find their boy And when the balloon eventually landed, it turned out the boy was not in the balloon, but rather was in the attic of their home the entire time. (laughs) 
Later investigation, though, uh, led to the belief that the parents had actually staged the event in order to possibly get some kind of TV show out of it. And uh, there was an interview with Wolf Blitzer on Larry King Live <clears throat> that same evening and asked why he was hiding. Falcon said to his father, you guys said that um, we did this for the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, that was interesting. And so there were some charges that came upon them. And I think much later they were ended up being cleared uh, after many years, uh, but they, I think they had some charges. Um, but you think, what does this have to do with anything? Well, in our story about Jesus this morning, it's about uh, his childhood. It's the only story recorded in the New Testament about Jesus' childhood. And now while Jesus uh, did not do anything sinful or foolish in being at the temple while his parents were returning home, <clears throat> nevertheless, he can't be found by his parents, causing them great panic. In fact, when, G when Mary comes to him, she says uh, about, uh, we were in this great distress. It's the only other time he uses that word is for Laz uh, the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus when uh, the rich man is in, in torment. And he says, we're in great distress, caused great distress upon his parents. Yet, as it turns out, all along, Jesus was at home the entire time. But not at his home in Nazareth, but rather at his home in the temple. His true father, God, he was there. But was he alone? No, he was with his father. And so, hence the title, Home Alone? Question mark. All right, there you go. <clears throat> and parents have a lot of pictures of their kids, especially in the iPhone generation. And, uh, you know, maybe if you were born before that, maybe your parents, like, have very few pictures of you, you know. And so, uh, we were able to take so many pictures. We have like, you know, our kids will hold down the button and it like takes a thousand pictures, you know, and eats up all your memory. Uh, but in years past, there was maybe just a few uh, pictures that you had of your childhood. Well, when you look, when you look at the, the childhood of Jesus, uh, there's really one picture that the gospel writers preserve for us uh, as the Holy Spirit led them. And it's really only Luke that includes this story and it's about the childhood of Jesus at 12 years old. We know about Jesus' birth and his, uh, his being born as a baby. But after that, the only story we have before his public ministry is this story here at 12 years old. Why do we only have this story? And why is this story only recorded by Luke? course, there's great speculation. We would certainly want to know more about the Lord Jesus and different parts of his life that the gospel writers don't include. This is also a reason why the, the gospels are not strictly biographies, uh, as would have been known during this time, because they're skipping huge sections about his life. They're writing for a particular purpose, one that is very theological as well. And they, this is the only thing we get about the 12-year-old Jesus. There's um, great speculation, some uh, writings that came after the Gospels uh, speculate about this time in Jesus' life, uh, telling stories about Jesus making pigeons or birds out of clay and then breathing life into them and doing miracles or, you know, Joseph cuts a board uh, too short and then he lengthens the board, you know, for his, for, his, for his adopted father. Just made up stories that have no validity to them. And one of the reasons we know that very, very quickly is that Jesus never did a miracle or a sign until the wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
in John chapter 2. That is the first sign John says that Jesus did. <clears throat> so he waited until his public ministry. So for all intents and purposes, Jesus' childhood would have been relatively ordinary. It would have looked like any other child growing up, save without sin. And so we don't want to create a Jesus in our own making, but a Jesus that is rightly ordered and understood from the scriptures. But why does he put this passage here? Because in chapter 3, we're going to hit the fast-forward button about 18 years from this instance and begin the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus' public ministry. And so we've, we've really fast-forwarded from Jesus at 40 days old to Jesus at 12 years old, and then we're going to fast-forward to Jesus at, uh, in, in his 30s. And so, why is this here? Well, there's a, a clue in the way this, that this passage is set up and bracketed. In verse 40 and verse 52, there's a statement, a summary statement about Jesus that is very similar. They're slightly different, but in essence, they're summarizing the growth of Jesus and really speaking to his true humanity. And that is a big clue as to the, the nature of this passage and why it's here. It is to show us and to show Theophilus, who this is written to, and us by extension, that Jesus truly was a man. We love to defend the deity of Christ, and rightly so, that he's truly God, but we ought also to defend the true humanity of Christ. And that is what Luke does here. He shows us that Jesus grew, just like any other child grew, and he grew in all the different areas that people grow in. But not only that, we also have in the middle section, between these brackets, a story about Jesus at 12, and what it tells us is what Jesus' self-understanding of himself was who he understood himself to be from an early age. You know, some people like posit this idea that Jesus is like slowly coming into the consciousness of his Messiahship in his public ministry. Now that is, that is not true at all. Jesus clearly here at 12 years old understands not only his identity, but his mission. And so that's what we see here that Luke is showing us. Remember the context of where we've been. <clears throat> Luke has been showing us different characters who are testifying to the identity of Jesus. You have the angel, Gabriel, who comes, and he tells us things, and he gives revelation about this child who's to be born. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth who speak to the expectation of the Messiah and his identity. You have Joseph and Mary, and particularly Mary and what she says in the Magnificat, speaking about the identity of the Messiah and this child. Uh, and then you have, we just looked at, Simeon and Anna, two examples of Old Testament saints who have an expectation for the Messiah and they see baby Jesus and they make proclamations about who he is and his identity. And so what better way to cap off this whole section about speaking to the true identity of Jesus than to let Jesus tell us who his true identity is from the age of 12. And so that's what we have in Luke at the end. Be, right before we get into the public ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus' own self-understanding of himself, that he's truly a man, and yet he is the son of God. And he is on a mission from God. So that is really the focus of this passage and why it is here and why Luke is the one who includes it. <clears throat> who did Jesus understand himself to be? He knew himself to be the God-man. So in this passage, we want to see two snapshots of the boyhood of Jesus in order to help you marvel at and meditate upon the person of Christ. Two snapshots of the boyhood of Jesus 
in order to help you marvel at and meditate upon the person of Christ. First, I want you to marvel at the summary statements of Jesus revealing his humanity. Marvel at the summary statements of Jesus revealing his humanity, and then we will look in the middle and we will marvel at the sonship of Jesus revealing his deity. Two points. So first, let's marvel at the summary statements of Jesus revealing his humanity. Here's Jesus' growth as a true man. Look just for context at uh, verse 39 again. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And public sins require public confession. So last week I misspoke. I don't think any of you caught it because no one texted me or emailed me. Uh, But I said that the wise men came to Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And that's in total error. That's like Sunday school error, you know, like kids Sunday school error. So I want to clarify that. The the wise men came to Bethlehem. What I was saying was in our manger scene, this most likely not the case that that they come immediately after his birth, but sometime later. And so let me just, this, this is like, you know, some of those things that you're trying to put together because Luke does not mention the Magi or the flight to Egypt where the parents go. And so you think, how does that fit in? There's really three ways to put that together based on what he says here. Because he says, after the 40 days when they dedicated Jesus in the temple, says they returned to Nazareth. So either, number one, all that stuff with the Magi coming and then them fleeing to Egypt and then returning to Nazareth happened within the 40 days of Jesus, the first 40 days of Jesus' life, which seems unlikely that it all contained within that. The second view is possible that Luke is just giving a summary statement. And really, when it says in verse 39, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and that's at the 40 days of Jesus' life. He's 40 days old. And then it's really, Luke is not mentioning that they, at that point then, they go back to Bethlehem. Then the Magi come some, maybe a year later, and then they're told to flee to Egypt. They go to Egypt, and then they return to Nazareth. And all Luke is doing is like cutting that whole slice out and saying they went back to Nazareth. That's possible. That's very possible. I think the best is, though, and, and of course, we hold these loosely because we, we don't have revelation about this, but these are ways that people have sought to harmonize these things. One is that most likely, Luke is just saying, frankly, that after they dedicated Jesus in Jerusalem at 40 days old, they did return back to Nazareth. They had come to Bethlehem to, for the registration. They probably didn't bring all their possessions at that time, but they go from Bethlehem then. 40 days later, they come to Jerusalem, they dedicate Jesus, then they return to Nazareth, their home, and likely pack their bags and move to Bethlehem. Because when you have the Magi visiting in Matthew 2 verse 11, it says that they came to the house in which they were living. And so now they're, before they're like, hey, where can we stay? And there's no room in the guest room. And, and so they're, they're trying to find this place for Jesus to stay. And he's born in this manger. And, but, but when the Magi come, he's in a house and they're living there. So somehow they get to Bethlehem and they're living there. And it seems like it's a later point. And then uh, the Magi come, they visit. And then there's this warning that uh, Herod is going to come. And so he, they need to flee into Egypt. So they flee into Egypt. And it says that Herod killed the babies in Bethlehem that were two years old and younger. So that gives us a sense that maybe Jesus is a little bit older than just a, a few days old. And so then they go to uh, Egypt. And then when they're going to return back, the angel specifically says, don't return back to Bethlehem, but return to Nazareth. And so it's likely at that point then they return to Nazareth. So I think Luke is probably just saying, hey, after they were in Jerusalem to dedicate him, they went back to Nazareth. And then none of the rest of that is explained, but because he doesn't include the Magi story. So I think why Matthew includes Magi is that 
It is to show, look at these pagan Gentiles who get it. They see the Messiah has come and you guys don't. It's a very Jewish gospel. And so Luke doesn't include that for his purposes. He has a different angle he's going at in this. So there you go. I had to get that off my chest, bothering me this week. All right, hope you'll forgive me. Okay, Uh, so look at verse 40 though. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong and and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then jump down to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These are the bookends. These are the summary statements, the brackets of Jesus' ministry. And the first one in verse 40 is likely Jesus is a couple years old, maybe, as it says the statement. And verse 52 is a statement after he's been 12 years old, and it's kind of describing his continued growth through his teenage years on into his uh, public ministry. And so this is the way he brackets this. What you'll find is you can, uh, in, in the scriptures, this statement about growing and becoming strong and growing in wisdom is a, is a refrain that's used in, in the case of a lot of individuals in the Old Testament uh, of Samuel. And it's used in Genesis. It's used in Judges of, of Samson. And uh, it's used in Proverbs 3, verse 4, uh, to, this way to speak. And it's also used of John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 80 where it says, and the child grew, speaking of John the Baptist, and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And this is a way for Luke to elevate Jesus and say he's greater than John the Baptist. But it's also a way, by, by speaking in terms similar to how other children are spoken of as growing, that he is truly a man. He's spoken of in the terms of a normal human being growing and maturing in every area. And so that is really Luke's emphasis here. Uh, really, in verse 40, there's this general growth physically and spiritually. He, the child grew and became strong. That's probably just speaking to his physical growth. And then he was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, speaking of his spiritual growth. He grew physically. He had, I mean, this is what's just so incredible and makes us marvel, that Jesus had to learn to crawl. He had to learn how to walk. Uh, His parents had to feed him for a while. And then he had to learn to feed himself. All these different things. Maybe they had, you know, we're speculating, of course, but maybe they had a little marker in their house where they marked his height as he grew, like you have for your kids. These were all the natural ways of his growth physically. He grew spiritually. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was upon him. It says that when he grew in knowledge, he didn't just grow in factual knowledge, but he grew in how these fit together and wisdom and how to to do it. I mean, you can read a manual, I suppose, on how to fly an airplane, but it doesn't mean you're ready to fly it. You got to get in there and know the wisdom. Like, I don't want someone flying me who's just read the book but hasn't done it. Like, I want some hours. And so you jump in and and they, they know, they know the wisdom of how to apply the knowledge. To circumstances, and, that, and that's what we want for our, ourselves as well, to grow in not just knowledge, but wisdom. And so he grew in that way and in favor with God. This is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which says this about the Messiah. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Now look at verse 52, because this is a little bit more expansive as far as his growth goes. Jesus increased, and here's four areas in which he grew. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. 
These are the four ways he grows. And you could also see that uh, there's a progression in Luke chapter 2. He's referred to as a baby in chapter 2, verse 16, to a child in chapter 2, verse 40, to a boy in chapter 2, verse 43, and then simply to, as Jesus in chapter 2, verse 52. Even in a subtle way, there's a growing uh, in the, uh, of Jesus in the references to him and the terms being used of him. And likely, verse 52 speaks more to his teenage years and growth after, his, uh, after he was 12. But notice these areas of growth that he goes through. He grows intellectually. He grows physically. He grows spiritually. We might say he grows relationally or socially. He continued to grow intellectually. He increased in wisdom. Now, Jesus did not just have a physical body. He also had a human soul and a human will. He had a mind, he had affections, and a will that were human. Right? He had to learn, this means math and the alphabet and the scriptures. And he had to do it like all of us have to do it. Now, we don't quite know how much sin affects even our thinking process, right? And they call that the noetic effects, you know, dealing with knowledge and the, just the way the curse has like kind of made us dumber. <laughs> uh, but he was not uh, just kind of tapping into the, the God document and you know, like pulling, you know, uh, information from there. He was truly learning and growing and going from a lack of knowledge to a growth in knowledge. He was progressing in that way. He asked questions throughout his ministry, like, who touched me? And they're like, what do you mean who touched you? We're in a massive crowd here. <laughs> He's like, he senses that power has gone out from him. He says, who, who touched me? Or no one knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man, not even the Son of Man. So he learned to grow just like any other child and man. Think, how did Jesus know what he knew? Well, what did he know? You think about it. Did Jesus at 12 years old know who the first president of the United States was going to be? <laughs> no, he didn't. Well, how could he possibly know that information? Did he know what black holes were? No, he did not. One writer said this, apart from special revelation by the Spirit, Jesus did not know anything that was outside of his experience or beyond the capacity of a human mind at that age to know. And so we, we say and affirm that he took on all that it is to be human except for sin. And this is very important. This is a lot of debates in the early church as to how to understand the, the person of Christ. After the discussions about understanding the triunity of God, there was discussions then which had implications as a result of those discussions of the person of Christ as a truly man and truly God. And Irenaeus of Lyons wrote this, great profound statement. He said, for that which he, that's Christ, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, if Jesus just had a physical body but didn't have a a human will and a human uh, affections and, 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 and whatnot, then he can't heal those things. You're on your own for that. <laughs> but he truly did uh, become a human such that he had a mind, affections, and a will that were human so that he could redeem all of those. And so it's necessary that he become just like us in those ways. So he grew intellectually. 
He grew physically. Jesus was advancing in stature. He was increasing in stature. It's not hard to imagine, once again, we're speculating, but it's not hard to imagine possibly Jesus is helping his father, his adopted father, Joseph. Um, and uh, maybe there was a time when they're working together and his father says, no, no, don't hold the tool that way. Hold it this way so you don't hit yourself, you know, or hurt your finger or something like that. And learning, figuring out how do you use this? How do you use that? That would be a very uh, natural way to understand the growth of the Lord Jesus. We read of him hungering and thirsting through his life. He grew tired. He slept. And so he's growing physically, continuing to do so. He's also growing spiritually. It says he was advancing in favor with God. He continues to grow in his knowledge of the scriptures and of his submission to the Father. Hebrews 5 verse 8, is an interesting verse, says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's not indicating anything about uh, sinfulness, but rather he's growing in obedience. He's more and more obedient to God, even through uh, affliction and suffering. And then Jesus continued to grow relationally or socially. He's advancing in favor with men. Now, why do we belabor this point? Well, people often get confused at this point and say wrong things about the person of Christ. I'll give you an example. In Philippians chapter uh, 2, verse 7, it, it speaks about the incarnation of Jesus, and it said that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Right? And so some have <clears throat> uh, said things like, oh, well, you know, he emptied himself of his divine attributes, so like om- omnipresence and omnipotence, so he could become a man. Uh, no, <laughs> he did not. In fact, even the hymn we sang, And Can It Be, uh, the hymnal we sing out of changed a line in that to be more theologically precise because it used to say, emptied himself of all but love. Now, if you trace that out to its logical conclusion, that's problematic. We're not saying he, he stopped being God in any of his essential attributes, and so they've changed it to emptied himself to show his love. So what is the nature of this emptying? Well, He cannot stop being God. The eternal God cannot stop being God in any part of his being, any of his essential attributes, which is all of them. The nature of his emptying then was, in the context, by adding. He emptied himself taking, by taking. By taking a human nature, he has emptied himself. It's an emptying by adding. It's a subtraction by, uh, it's not a subtraction, but an addition hunt theologian once used an illustration uh, take it or leave it uh, about like a sports car and you you know this guy goes out to test drive a sports car and drives it in the mud it's been raining and it's covered in mud and he brings it back to the dealership and he's like here you go I liked it and uh, and he's like what did you do to the car he's like oh I didn't do anything to the car I added to the car all this mud <laughs> and you can't see the paint anymore but it's as like it's as if in a way the theologian is trying to say nothing was taken away from the true deity of this eternal son, but there was something added to him, the dirt of humanity, such that it, it, it veiled in a way his, his true glory in, in the sense of we see it peeled back at the transfiguration so that there's a, a sight of that. And so there's this mystery in the incarnation. It's the mystery of mysteries such that while Jesus is learning Olive, Beth, and Gimel, his alphabet, according to his human nature, 
he is upholding the universe by the word of his power according to his divine nature. Like, how does that work? You know, you ask the question, was Jesus, was the, was the person of Christ omnipresent? That depends. The answer is yes, according to his divine nature. His, his the omnipresence was not contained in the, uh, in, the, in the body of Jesus in the sense that he no longer was omnipresent according to his divine nature. But was he located in one place at one time? Absolutely, according to his human nature. We don't divide the natures, but we have to distinguish between the natures. And here's what the Heidelberg Catechism said in question 48. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he has taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. And so, you go, I, I don't know if I got that. Well, go read Heidelberg, okay? Figure it out. <laughs> Stephen Wellam says this, the, God, the son did not cease to be what he has always been. That's why we say remaining what he was, all of his divine attributes, he became what he was not by taking a human nature. And so we have to be very careful here and not be flippant with our speech. Jesus did not have, put it this way, a divinized humanity or a humanized divinity such that his divine nature kind of bled into his human nature to make him a superhuman or that his human nature bled into his divine nature to bring God down. And no, neither of those are the case. He was truly God and truly man. And this is why there was the formulation of what's known as the Chalcedonian Creed, which was written in 451 uh, AD. And they used language to carefully guard against error here. And there's really, uh, it was speaking about the two natures of Christ. He has a divine nature and a human nature, and therefore a divine will and a human will. And here's what they said. They used four negatives to speak of the relation of these two natures. Four negatives to guard orthodoxy. They said this, that they are without mixture or confusion, without separation or division. I'm just going to let those sit with you and, and, and not really go into detail on those. But those were the, the, the guardrails they set up. So we can't say everything positively about this, but we can surely guard against error in this. Each nature, therefore, retained its own attributes. And I said this already, but this is a quote from R.C. Uh, R.C. Sproul. I'm R.C., and we both have Robert Charles, but, you know, uh, you call me R.C. Wahab from now on. <laughs> R.C. Sproul. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he said this, We cannot divide the two natures, but we must distinguish between them. I mean, theology is about making careful distinctions. G.K. Burkhauer said this about these four negative statements from Chalcedon. They, he said, he described them this way. They are a double row of lighthouses that mark off the navigable waters between and warn of the dangers that threaten to the left and to the right. So you're trying to steer the ship of understanding Christology and here's these lighthouses that say, hey, don't go too far this direction and don't go too far that direction, but try and stay in the middle, okay? That, that's the idea. And so why are these statements here that Luke gives us? They are to emphasize the true humanity of Jesus. And this is a great encouragement to us. That's the what. What's the so what, though? How do we think about this? Well, having become a true human, he is able to redeem all of us. Having grown in every way, he redeems 
us in entirely, every part of us. And he came to fulfill all righteousness, as we'll even see as he obeys the fifth commandment, submitting to his parents. Those who were once in Adam can now be in Christ, the perfect human. And in addition to this, as a truly human man, he's able to sympathize with us in every stage of life. Providentially, we just happen to read Hebrews 4 in our scripture reading, which says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service, to God, service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, there is uh, great sympathy the Lord Jesus has for us as his dear children, his, his brothers, as Hebrews says. There's a phenomenon in music known as sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. If you strike one note on a piano next to another piano, the piano that was not played will gently resonate with the same note even though it has not been touched. One writer said this about it in making this illustration. Uh, he said, Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. And hear this, he took that instrument, that body, to heaven with him. It is his priestly body. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, it resonates in his. There is no note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted human instrument. What an encouragement that is. They think, dear Christian, this is the Jesus you worship. The world has all kinds of ideas about Jesus. Here is the description of the humanity of Jesus and what a comfort that is to us in all the struggles we go through. He is a sympathetic human being, a sympathetic high priest for us. So marvel at the summary statements that reveal his humanity. Second, we want to marvel at the sonship of Jesus, which reveals his deity. Here we see Jesus' grasp of his identity before God think, Robert, okay, that was a lot. Uh, how are you going to do this? All right, it's, this is the story part, okay? Uh, this is, it, it, it just flows. And if this were a movie, there would be a caption at the bottom that said like 12 years later after the dedication of Jesus. Here's really a summary here. One writer said, people will struggle to understand Jesus' task in person. What is clear is that Jesus does not struggle to know either God or his own mission. Another writer said, Luke's account reveals plainly that at the age of 12, Jesus already possessed a complete understanding of his nature and mission. He was God the Son, come to do the Father's will. Now look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Three major feasts, and uh, faithful Jews would, would go to these, Jerusalem for these feasts. And we're seeing, once again, the piety of Jesus' parents. He chose this home for him to ra be raised in. And they are regularly going to the, the Passover. <clears throat> Passover was to celebrate God's redemption from, uh, of his people, Israel, from Egypt, bringing them out. And uh, the distance to travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem was around 80 miles. It would take about three or four days of traveling, and they would travel in these big groups together as they went. It was quite a sacrifice to leave for that amount of time. And uh, the, the Feast of Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the rest of the week. 
And later we're going to see that they stayed, it indicates in the text, they stayed for the entirety of that time before they went home. And some Jews would just come for Passover. They would celebrate that and they would maybe leave the next day. They're like, let's get, let's get a jump on it. Let's not stay for the rest of unleavened bread. And, and that was, we believe, a common practice among some. Uh, and yet it seems to indicate that Jesus' family stays the whole time. Like they, they really prize the people of God and the ordinances of God given for the benefit of the people of God. And so they are pious. Once again, we're seeing that as they bring uh, Jesus now as he's 12 years old. Verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And uh, Jesus, you know, later developments, it seems, in uh, Judaism began to celebrate what we know as a bar mitzvah, right? For a girl, it's a bat mitzvah. And so this is like a, a, a coming of age type of ceremony. And so that happens for Jews at the age of 13 for the male. And, and so how old is Jesus? He's 12. And so that may, that formal aspect may not have quite been in place yet, but there still seems to be some kind of understanding that this is a transitionary time. This is right before Jesus is, is like fully accountable to, for himself, for the law. He's the son of the covenant in that idea. And so uh, he is right about to enter that next stage of life, so to speak. And that's where we find him. And so uh, they bring him up. And we don't know if they brought him every year. It seems plausible that they brought him. Uh, They weren't required to. It was the male who had to come. But but likely they do bring him. And here he, uh, you know, maybe they had many years. It was just kind of the normal thing that they did, the pattern. But something different happens this year, as we will see. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended... And uh, ESV doesn't bring it out as much, but if you compare some other translations, you'll see it's like when the, all the days of the feast were, were completed is the idea. As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. And so begins the tension in the text here. Think, how could this happen? How could, well, number one, there were a big group of people traveling all together. And, you know, I, I know we're speculating, but at this point, it's possible Mary and Joseph have had other kids. Jesus is 12. Maybe they've got, you know, James and little Jude, and they're running around, and uh, half-brothers of, of, of Jesus, and, and their attention is taken up with them. And don't you think Jesus was a responsible child, right? Uh, I think so. I think he proved himself time and again, lots of trust. So I don't think there was a lot of worry about, you know, where Jesus was at this point. And... Uh, and yet, maybe at the end of that first day, as they're kind of gathering together, circling up as a family, like, where's Jesus? Well, I don't know. Honey, I thought you had him. <laughs> and so there's this uh, verse 44, this tension. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. This reminds me of uh, that scene in the movie Home Alone. It's okay if you haven't seen it, but their, you know, their son gets left at home alone when they go on vacation and they're at the airport and they're giving out the bags, the big family, and they're like, you know, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin. They keep passing the luggage down, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin. And then the last one looks over and Kevin's not there. And so he goes, Kevin's not here. And they keep passing it, Kevin's not here, Kevin's not here, Kevin's not here. And finally gets back to his mom and his mom has it in her hand. She's like, Kevin's not here. And she's like, comes to the realization of what she just said. And she goes, Kevin, you know, and then she falls over. <laughs> so that's what's kind of happening here is that they are realizing that Jesus isn't with us. We've lost the Messiah. I mean, this is bad. So they begin looking for him. Matthew Henry has a great little line. He says this. He says, this was a jewel worth seeking after. This is a jewel worth seeking after. 
And so they begin to search frantically. I mean, maybe this is partially the prophecy of Simeon coming to partial fulfillment, that a sword will pierce your heart, Mary. And she's starting to be in great distress about her child here. And it says in verse 46 that they were looking for him for three days. So it says, pick up in verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. And so people speculate, oh, how, what is this, this three days in Jerusalem? It's probably, I think, more the case that they realize he's gone, you know, and uh, a day, uh, they'd gone a day, they got the day back, and they search a day in Jerusalem is probably the idea there. Finally, after the long search, they find him in the temple. And we have so many questions. I mean, uh, you're probably like, well, where did Jesus stay at night? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, where did he eat? You know, where did he get food? And, and I don't know. It doesn't tell us. None of those details matter to Luke. He is after something else. And Jesus isn't doing anything sinful here. I mean, that's it, it, clear in so many ways. But even in the text, it says, and he continued in submission to his parents at the end of this statement, which means he was submissive before, and he just continues in that pattern going forward. <clears throat> now, if you've lost your child, I don't know, maybe you, some of you have done this. Please tell me afterward. I love these stories. I you know, found a few of them. You know, it's like you leave from church, and then you're like, hey, where's someone? It's like, oh, they're back at the church, and they're just kind of sitting there waiting, you know, uh, bored. But... <laughs> What would be the ideal circumstance if you had lost your child, right? Well, that they would go to a public place, that they would be uh, with responsible adults, and that they would be talking about the scriptures. <laughs> I mean, and that's what you have with Jesus. He's in the temple, the most public place. He's with the, the teachers of Israel, and he's talking about the Bible. This is great. This is ideal. <clears throat> And we see here, there's this astonishment, first at the, the teachers of Israel, and then at the parents, different words, but their, their astonishment at Jesus. Verse 46, it says this. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They're amazed. He's so curious about the scriptures. Here's his opportunity to just ask questions and, and, and learn from and, and see what the, the teaching of the day was. And this is like being, these are like the most educated men in Israel at this time. They know the law of God better than anyone. They know the scriptures better than anyone. It's like Harvard or Yale, maybe not today, but uh, you know what those stood for, and, and Oxford, and, and here's Jesus interacting with them. And they're amazed. It's not just that he's like memorized a lot of scripture. He knows connections. His answers show a, a profound knowledge of the scriptures. One writer said this, he wasn't merely listening to the teachers, but engaging in back and forth with them and apparently giving rather extended answers in some cases. He was the one with the audience. And so they're amazed at this. This idea of amazed is, is astonished. It's overwhelmed, blown away. There's like trepidation here. They're marveling. Later in chapter 4, verse 22, we read, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And so here he is, at 12 years old, with a greater grasp of the scriptures than some of the greatest teachers in Israel. 
He's just soaking it up and, and, and sh- showing his knowledge to them. Now, you know, th- once again, there's like weird speculation that, that gets from extra biblical sources where they're like, you know, have Jesus explaining like astronomy to them and, you know, uh, nuclear physics and all kinds of stuff that, about, you know, the world to these people. That is not at all what was happening. There's really this question and answer format that happens in, with the rabbis. And so he, they're asking questions and, and then he's answering and there's this back and forth and it's about the scriptures. And you're like, how did he get this knowledge of the scriptures? Go back to the summary statements. He studied, he read the Bible, he, he learned from the scriptures. He was taught well. And so his knowledge came from studying, which says a lot. It's like, wow, like a 12-year-old can learn a lot, right? <laughs> if a 12-year-old can know this much about his own identity and his mission, then I think a 12-year-old can understand who Jesus is and also what he came to do. That seems plausible. And so they should trust in him. Whatever age you are, you should trust in Christ. Come to the knowledge of who he is and what he came to do. And so there's this profound statement then that we get after Mary, when uh, we don't know if this was public or she pulled him aside privately. We're just not told those details, but look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And so of course, Mary, you know, like any mother is having the response you would expect. She's distressed and she even says the, your father and I, you know, it's like people still say this, you know, your father and I, what, what are you doing to us? She's anxious and worried. But look at the response of Jesus in verse 49. These are Jesus's very first words in the gospels. What are the first words of Jesus? Sometimes you think of like, oh, what, are the, what, were, what, was, what was my first words, mom? You know, what did I say first? Like, is it mommy, daddy, you know, ball, you know? And we're like, oh, he said ball. He's gonna be an athlete, right? It tells you something about their character, we think. Well, we don't get Jesus' first words as a baby, though he likely, you know, spoke. And it wasn't the first time he actually spoke. This is the first recorded thing he says. But it says a lot about who he's gonna be and do because it speaks to his self-identity and who, who he understands himself to be and what he is here to do. Look, look at what it says in verse 49. And he said to them, to his parents, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the crux of the text. This is it. Now, this is where you have to put the right emphasis on the right syllable, right? Uh, because sometimes we say, we read it like this. Why were you looking for me? As if it's like, of course they would be looking for him. He's gone. You know, like, that makes sense. I think it's better to read it as, why were you looking for me? Why did it take you so long? Didn't you understand that I would be right here in the temple about my father's business? It seems to be better to take it that way as location. Knowing what you know about me, knowing all those prophecies about me, knowing what you know about your son, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go, oh, he'll be here. I know exactly where he'll be. Why did it take so long is the idea. And then he gives this profound statement about his awareness and consciousness deeply rooted within him. Because when we make assumptions, it says a lot about how deeply rooted something is. Like Jesus says, I was, had to be in my father's, father's house. Like just, it just comes off so easily. It's his assumption. Now, actually the word house is not in the original. It's really, I had to be in my father's blank. And so that's why some translations will say, I had to be my, about my father's business, like the King James, or about my, in my father's house. And um, I kind of lean towards the, uh, 
in the house, because I mean, it's, he's in the temple, and uh, of course Jesus is about his father's business, but what is he saying here? And I think that's this idea. He had to be here in the presence of God at this time. And so he, he is speaking about his nature and his relationship to God. And now there's this wordplay here, because uh, this contrast, rather, because she says, your father and I have been distressed about you. And then Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house. There's a difference. He, she's saying, your adopted father and I, Joseph, are distressed. And he says, I had to be about my father's house. And, and he, he claims God is his father. Now, now, we are so used to this. We say, oh, we open all of our prayers like father, father. And we, we address that God, God that way, and rightly so. But that was a very, I mean, not just uncommon, that was unheard of to speak that way about God. This was not the way, you can think about it like this. No one ever in the Jewish scriptures addressed God this way. Yes, God was understood as the father of the nation of Israel, and he was uh, understood in that way, in a, in a corporate sense, and also in a creative sense as the, the creator of all. But no one would claim him as the personal, intimate father. Listen to David Gooding's words on the significance of this. He says, my father's house, the learned doctors knew the Old Testament inside out. In all the long biblical record, not even Moses, who had built the tabernacle, not David, who had longed to build the temple, nor Solomon, who had actually built it. No prophet, no king, no commoner, not the most exalted of them had ever referred to the tabernacle or temple as my father's house. The child was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of, let alone expressed before. And with that relationship, a compelling devotion, I had to be in my father's house. Jesus is the divine son from the father. And this has massive implications. And we know that in part because it's not just he's saying this is, the son of language often speaks to um, one's nature, right? Like Barnabas is the son of encouragement, right? He embodies encouragement. That's the idea. So to be the son, or um, uh, James and John were the, were Bonerges, which meant sons of thunder, because they were like fiery guys, fiery fishermen, you know? And, uh, and so that's what, they embodied as their character. And here is Jesus, who is the son of his father. He shares the very essence of God. And in John chapter 5, you have this interesting interchange with the religious leaders later. And Jesus says in John five seventeen, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the issue. And Jesus says it so casually, not casually as in like irreverently, but just so naturally. My father. He has this unique, intimate relationship and identity with the father. He is the eternal son of the eternal father. He shares equality with God as the son. Jesus is the word, after all, who communicates the father to us. He is by nature, God is, a father who has a son and has communicated his love to his son from all eternity. And as a son, he has enjoyed his father's love poured out by the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks about how the fathers loved him before the foundations of the world. This is what was happening in eternity before anything was created. The eternal triune love. This has massive implications for how you think about God. 
if you view him just as a lawgiver alone or as just power, that's kind of similar to other religions. It's just might makes right. But fundamentally, God is, yes, he's powerful, but he is a father by nature who communicates himself to his son and his son receives the loving uh, affection of his father through the spirits being poured out. And that very language is then given to us. Jesus says, here's how you pray, our father, our father. We call God as our father, why? Because we've been adopted into Christ. He gives us access to God, the life of God in the soul of man. So now we enjoy this. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit, God, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5. And so we enter into this incredible relationship with the triune God that Christ has known from all eternity. But notice, really finally here, that he, he understands his mission as well. Notice in verse 49 that he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is a little word in Greek, but it speaks to necessity. It's really a key word in Luke's gospel. Matthew uses it eight times. Mark uses it six times. Luke uses it 18 times in Luke and 22 times in Acts. And it speaks to the divine mission that Jesus is on. I must be in my father's house. In chapter four, verse 43, he says this. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In chapter nine, verse 22, it says this, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 13, verse 33 Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish from, his own, uh, from Jerusalem. It goes on, chapter 17, chapter 19, chapter 21, 22, 24. We'll just end with 24 here. Uh, chapter 24, verse 7. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He says the same, in, virtually the same in verse 26 and verse 44. It's just constantly through the gospel, this refrain, I must, I must, I must, I must. He's on a divine mission. Once again, Irenaeus of Lyons says this, he who was the son of God became the son of man, that man might become the son of God. He who was the son of God became the son of man, that man might become the son of God. Because of Jesus' humanity and true deity as the son, eternal son, he is able to bring us into the relationship of adopted sons into his family. Ladies, you're like, well, I don't want to be a son. Well, the, the guys have to be the bride of Christ and the girls have to be the sons of God, okay? That's the, how the language works, okay? <laughs> we'll each handle that. Mind you, Jesus is 12 years old when he understands this. He will grow still more as Verse 52 tells us, but what an understanding he already has. What an encouragement this is to us. He not only has the ability to accomplish redemption, but he has the consciousness and the awareness of why he is here to do it. And his parents seem to be catching up still. Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. This is another common theme in Luke's gospel, that lack of understanding. And yet, no doubt, Mary would 
come to grasp some of these things better in the future because verse 51 says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus, though he's the eternal son, he still submits to his earthly parents and he is gonna be with them for at least another 18 years even though he's consciously aware of who he is. He's the model child. I don't think I need to point out, there's like a lot of rich secondary application in this passage on parenting and children and growth as a Christian in all these areas of life and submission. Jesus submits to the fifth commandment, uh, not only to qualify us to be right with God, but as a model for us. He's the, he's the ideal man. We're conformed to his image. So all these things are great models for us and our knowledge of the scriptures. That's just not the main point. Uh, that's like taking the temptation of Jesus saying, here's all these principles for resisting temptation when the main point is, Jesus, the second Adam, has been successful where the first Adam was not, so he's qualified to be our Savior. And so, yeah, have at it with all those applications. They're all there. They're so rich. There's so much. But here's a, one final observation for you about Mary. She doesn't get it all yet, and yet she's treasuring up these things in her heart. This is a good word for us. Sometimes we learn truth, and we don't get it all yet. We don't understand how it all fits together, and that's okay. We're in progress. Mary didn't get it all. She, she's getting these things, and I don't understand that. How does that fit together? You've certainly known that. As more clarity has come in your life, and it's like, I need to hold on to this. I need to treasure this up, and maybe God will give more light in the future. Matthew Henry says this, we may find use for that another time, which now we see not how to make useful to us. A scholar keeps those grammar rules in memory, which at present he understands not the use of because he is told that they will hereafter be of use to him. So we must do by Christ's sayings. That's a good word. So as you continue to grow, like Mary, in understanding Jesus and his nature and all the things in the scriptures, just treasure these things up, even if you don't fully have all the answers tightened down for you. This is where marveling comes in. Even not, not understanding all of it, we go, he is so much bigger than I ever knew. I mean, he, he is so profound, we cannot wrap, we can know him truly, but not exhaustively. And so this is what Luke wants us to marvel at as we enter into his public ministry so that we hear him with an intensity and a fervor because we understand the identity of the son, not only from all those who have come before, but himself. He understands himself, what he is here for and who he is. What a savior, what a redeemer, this child who has come. He knows exactly what he's doing. A sympathetic savior, a sympathetic high priest. May this bring you great comfort today as you marvel and meditate upon the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, his intense study of the scriptures, his coming to an awareness of what your word said and his role in that. We thank you that he willingly went to the cross, obeyed, for us and has been resurrected. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, thank you for even just a little bit pressing our minds to be expanded in our understanding of the divine and human natures of Christ. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around these things completely, and yet you intended it that way that we might continue to marvel at you. For what we don't fully understand yet, may we treasure these things up like Mary And may you further give light as we grow and grow that you might continue to satisfy us with the person and the work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.